Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking about a new book called Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. It's just announced by Jeff Edgers, who's a writer for the Washington Post, and he's joining me right now, hopefully. Jeff, hello. Hi there. How you doing? Good. Thanks for making time to do this today. Of course. My pleasure. So glad to be on the show. Congrats on the book. It's a great read. Now, make your case for Walk This Way being a song that changed specifically the collaboration between Run DMC and Aerosmith, changing American music forever. Well, and it's important to note that, you know, Walk This Way, the Run DMC version, there are a lot better Run DMC songs. Right. There are better ones on that Raising Hell. But (laughs) it's very simple. I can make the argument in 15 seconds. This is the first rap song that was played on mainstream radio, which ruled the day. And in light of that, because MTV followed radio programming and rock radio, you remember the flag and, you know, this is MTV, rock and roll. They followed rock radio. And so it's the first rap song that was played in like main rotation on MTV. So it changed everything. I mean, everything you can think of that came after in this universe, In Living Color, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Public Enemy and Anthrax even terrible things like the Fat Boys and the Beach Boys, all those came (laughs) after Walk This Way. Fair enough. I mean, frankly, I'm not sure it matters whether we can hold up the argument, which I think is a strong argument because the book is such an enjoyable narrative anyway. It's sort of a a secondary issue. One of the main things I enjoy in the book is the people who undercut the song and its importance that you allow to speak, like Lear Cohen, who always hated it. Lear Cohen might say he hates it. I got this amazing footage nobody had ever seen that was in the Viacom vault, and I used it as part of my report. And Lear Cohen's like a 22-year-old kid sitting there as Joe Perry's doing his riff, bopping around, looking like he's having as much fun as anyone in the world. So, I mean, maybe he came to that opinion later, which I put in there. But at the time, he loved the moment. That's a good point, which you do make in the book. I mean, his argument now is that it was sort of like skipping a step ahead too far, too fast, maybe for Run DMC, and that also hip-hop should have been allowed to break through as hip-hop without the extra boost of rock, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, think about it is, there's no question that song, you know, it annoys people because Run DMC, who we'd say are the good guys, really didn't, you know, it didn't help them. It helped them in the moment. I mean, they became huge, but ultimately they fizzled out after that. And Aerosmith, it kind of saved. And the story has been turned into like Aerosmith helping run DMC when it's the other way around. I can understand why there would be some resentment on that side. But if you just isolate the moment and what it did for run DMC, it was huge. From their perspective, they had done, unlike Rockbox, they had already done rap rock. But Rick Rubin's position was that wasn't really rap rock. What was his argument? Well, Rick Rubin has a very particular aesthetic. I mean, I'd say Tim Summer, who worked at MTV and was involved in the music industry and was a friend of Rick Rubin, he kind of described it as like, a, it's not just rock, it's a kind of rock. It's like a meathead rock, like Blue Oyster Cult. It's a very specific thing. And Rick Rubin, when I talked to him, he did not like the sound of the guitar on Rockbox or King of Rock. He felt like it wasn't something that a real rock lover would embrace, which is a little bit snooty, right? But it's also like he wasn't on that song, so maybe that's why he doesn't like it. You can hear a moment where Rick Rubin gets involved, and it's Jam Master Jammin'. There's a version that was recorded without Rick Rubin that is on the King of Rock record, and then the B-side of that single... Rick Rubin threw his guitar on there, this bar chordy thing, and you can tell what his idea is, his aesthetic. But the most important thing about Rockbox and King of Rock is there might have been an electric guitar on there, Eddie Martinez, 
but this wasn't actually bringing these two universes together. You didn't have these two scraggly white guys in the <laughs> studio with Run DMC. Yeah, well, let's hear Rockbox for a second, because I think you can actually see where Rick is coming from on this. So it may be that it just lacks a certain visceral punch, and also that Rick Rubin, as you said, isn't on it, which might be his main problem, yeah. I mean, Eddie Martinez at the time was the hotshot studio guitarist who'd played with Blondie, and he would go on to play with Robert Palmer. I mean, he was exactly of that moment, and maybe that's the moment that he didn't love. Exactly. And you found this 20 minutes of footage from the Viacom vaults because the actual studio session was well covered. There were reporters from Spin and maybe Rolling Stone there, and photographers and MTV crew, and there's a few funny things. There's an interview with Run DMC and Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, and you can tell that there's no vibe there. <laughs> I think people want to believe because there is something sort of heartwarming about the cultural moment of bringing everything together in the video and knocking down walls. The truth is there was a huge wall between them. They had no chemistry whatsoever from what I can say. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was 15 years old when that song came out, and I remember watching the 92nd MTV News Report with Nina Blackwood. And so my natural thing as an old man now as a reporter, is when I was talking to Doug Herzog, who was then the head of Viacom a couple of years ago, I said, hey, you know, I know you had that 90-second report, but is there anything else in the vault? And he went and he found like 20 minutes of unseen footage, which, but when you watch that footage and you watch them interacting, it's crystal clear that neither side knew each other or cared about each other. I mean, Run DMC, they didn't even know the song was called Walk This Way. They had the song on the turntable scratched out, you know, black marker over it. They knew it as number four on Toys in the Attic. You know, Joe Perry's stepson, Aaron, who was like 13, I talked to him. He actually showed Joe Perry some of his tapes at the time, like Dougie Fresh and Run DMC, so that Joe at least had like an understanding of what it was. But I'm not sure how much he understood what it was. And Steven Tyler, I mean, he told me he was doing a lot of drugs at that time. He would go out on the street and he would buy tapes. But again, you watch them, as you said, it's clear that there's really not much understanding of what's going on. Yeah, we have a little bit of it. You did an excellent video from the Washington Post when you first did your story about this. We have a little bit of them talking. Let's hear a little bit of it right now if we can. Ask the artist questions. Is this the first time that you've met each other? Yes. yes. First, let me ask DMC, what were your impressions? When we seen them? No, when you met them. <laughs> Just now? Jay here is the first time? Yes. yes. Somebody came to saw us last night. Who, I saw you last night. You, you was deaf. They did popcorn. Oh, he did Mother Popcorn by James Brown last, last night. night. This, this guy is he might cover that song, Popcorn. Who's deaf? They cool. They cool. They cool from what we, you know, from what we see. They're normal, nice people. They know. down with the posse, you know what I'm saying? Like it's gonna be deaf. We're gonna get ready to do work. You know what I'm saying? We get rid of yeah. like the cameras and stuff. We're gonna do work. We've, we've already gone through it a couple times, and it's, it's working. It's happening. So yeah, there's even more awkward moments. There's a moment when I mean, they... watching it is amazing. And, yeah. and what you heard there, just so people can understand if they didn't see it, is, you know, Russell Simmons is trying to sort of save face and he had gone to see Aerosmith the night before. I think they played Philadelphia with Ted Nugent opening and they played Mother Popcorn. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, I saw Popcorn. It was deaf. And the other guys are just like, hmm, I, I don't know what this is all about, you know? <laughs> it's all a little bit disillusioning because, and your book is about much more than just that one session. You get into the whole history 
series of Aerosmith and Run DMC leading into it. But the actual session, there's so many disillusioning things about it. First of all, that Joe and Steve, although this is absolutely no surprise to anyone who knows Aerosmith, they just kept going to the bathroom or whatever and getting like insanely high on coke the whole time. Like that was one of their main activities, I guess, during these sessions. They were a mess. I mean, I got to tell you, like as a rock geek and as somebody who remembers going to see Aerosmith on their back in the saddle tour in 1984 when I was 13, one thing I take great pride in in this book is I don't think anyone has ever written or mined or reported as deeply on this period of time from 1979 when Joe Perry quits Aerosmith to 1986 when they get in that studio with Run DMC that I have. And it's not because I'm gifted, it's just because I'm obsessive. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's an amazing moment where you have these guys who are playing 80,000 seats at Texas Jam, who are the biggest band in the 70s, and Steven Tyler's living on an allowance out of a hotel room, and Joe Perry's cruising around in this broken-down van playing these crappy clubs and, like, having seizures. It's insane to think about. I mean, the photos alone are just crazy to me. Like, I found all these (laughs) great photos, but you have them come in there, and the fact is, the reason they did it is because they were paid $8,000. You know? Right, right. That's why they do this thing. Right, a lot better than the 20 bucks a day or whatever that Stephen Tower was living on. The thing was that you chronicle, as you say, very vividly, this period when Joe Perry was out of the band, and there were these poor dudes who had to try to fill his slot in a sort of kiss-like manner. They were even encouraged to sort of look like him on stage, right? Yeah, I mean, there's this poor guy, Jimmy Crespo, and he was the guitarist in Aerosmith from 79 until Joe came back in 84. And you got to remember, that's like as long, is that longer than Mick Taylor was in the Stones? I don't know. But, you know, Jimmy Crespo is an amazing player. Joe Perry is a very unpredictable player, and there's like Johnny Thunders in him that's quite great. But if you talk to Aerosmith people, members of the band, Jack Douglas, their amazing producer, Jimmy Crespo is the best technical guitarist they ever had. If you go on YouTube and like watch or listen to some of those gigs in the 80s, and you hear him play. Nobody can play like Jimmy Crespo, but he was a fragile human, and he just desperately was trying to make this band work. And, I mean, there's a photo in there. It's like three shows into this reformed Aerosmith. Joe's gone, but Jimmy's in there, and they go to play a gig in Maine, and, like, a few songs in, Steven Tyler passes out, and they have to, like, pick him up off the stage and carry him off. It's like, welcome to Aerosmith, you know? Right, and then at the same time, separately, as you mentioned, Joe Perry was having seizures. There was one day when he just had randomly had two seizures, which I recognize this approach from talking to the Aerosmith guys myself. He really downplays the significance of this day when he had a seizure so bad on stage that they had to pretend he was electrocuted so they would still get so they yeah, would still get like paid. The, the doctor said he needed to have more steak or something or, or whatever. It's really, you know, the other thing you got to remember is that it's a long time ago and it's hard for them to remember every detail. But the key for me is Mark Bell or Cowboy Mock Bell, who was the singer in the last Joe Perry project. He's a great guy. And I talked with him for a long time and he had a diary. I mean, while for Joe, this might have been a low point in his career, for Cowboy Mock, this was the greatest moment. This is the closest he's going to get to stardom. And so he's remembering every moment of it. And so he documented exactly when all these things would happen. He had some amazing photos as well. Sometimes someone like that is going to remember the situation more than Joe Perry. And then on the opposite side, and there's a lot to talk about, but the guys in Run DMC, we've known all these years that they called it a bunch of hillbilly gibberish, that they weren't excited about it. But again, I think there's a, a little bit of a glossing over that happened 
happens outside of your book where it's like, oh, but then they got into it. No, they they never got into it. They, they really kind of hated being there, it seems like. Well, they were dragged there. They were not eager participants. I mean, they were dragged there and pushed by Ruben and Russell Simmons. And that first session, you know, that March night session isn't really when they finished their vocals, I found. I mean, I think they were called back. You know, this is a weird thing to report on because we're so used to everything being documented perfectly. You know, everybody's got like the tweet that was sent out or the text message. But back then you had nothing. So I just had to report on the multiple options. So, you know, sometimes things happen like they're resisting and you think, well, maybe it's a day, maybe it's an hour they're resisting, maybe it's a week, who knows? No one can really pin it down. But there's no question that Run and D did not want to do this. Well, it was corny in their minds. They liked the idea of rapping over the beat and they had done that going way back and we'll get to that. There's a real history to it. But the idea of actually rapping, doing a cover song was just unheard of and frankly still is. (laughs) Hip hop covers in general are exceedingly rare to this day of any sort. That's true. But I will say the idea of the collaboration exists now and it didn't before. I mean, something like Kanye West or Paul McCartney together just doesn't seem that weird. It's like, oh, well, that's sort of weird, but it's not that weird. There was no example of that before 1986. You know, you could have like Curtis Blow doing Taking Care of Business in a weird sing-songy <laughs> off-tune way, but you wouldn't have him getting in the studio with BTO. I mean, the fact is, I remember all the supergroups of my childhood, and they were all white guys from England, like uh, Blind Faith or something, or like all these guys who would play on a blues record by Chuck Berry. You didn't have Dougie, Fresh, and Journey getting together, you know? Boy, that's a terrible idea. (laughs) I don't know. I actually kind of want to hear that. But yes, you're absolutely right. The idea of the sort of cross-genre mashup end of rap rock was absolutely born in that moment, and a ton of music, some of it great, some of it perhaps not so great in the 90s maybe, but came out of it, you know? And it was tremendously important. We have Jeff with us, and we're also about to be joined by Jack Douglas, the legendary producer. And there's a lot we could talk about with Jack. We could talk about John Lennon. Hopefully, we'll get a chance someday. But today, we're going to talk about Aerosmith and the original recording of Walk This Way. Jack, are you with us? I am. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here. It's nice to be here. Wherever wherever we are, yes. (laughs) There's a lot I would like to ask you, but let's specifically dig in. Jeff has a very detailed, the most detailed account probably ever of the making of the song Walk This Way. Probably the most controversial area of it is a very simple thing, which is who came up with the beat. And before we get into that, I should probably play something that indicates that parts of the beat were in the ether before, which is we should probably hear the song Tramp by Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, the beginning of that, if we have that ready. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. You You don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. So yeah, pretty close. Nonetheless, though, (laughs) I wonder if you guys could talk about just the very intense disagreement in the band. One of the things people should know is that Stephen Tower is a drummer and a very good one, which is one of the many problems. Oh, not a very good one. Okay, but he's adequate, and he's played in a band as a drummer, but he's not Joey Kramer. According to Stephen Tower, he's a very good drummer. How about that? (laughs) Uh, That's fine. What the hell? I'm a very good producer. (laughs) We're both very good liars. (laughs) Do you want Jack to take that, or you want me to? I mean, I want to just tell you, first yeah, of all, no, we're just so lucky to have Jack here because the conversations I had with Jack for this book were among my favorites. I mean, he's a great storyteller. He's got a really good memory and a sense of humor. And you know what? He's also got a sense of humanity. I'll tell you that Jack, and I quoted it in the book, ultimately, when we were discussing this, who came up with the beat, Jack made a little bit of an appeal to me to just let it not really be a discussion. You know, he feels like it has caused 
so much tension and conflict over the years and so much pain for Joey Kramer, Aerosmith's drummer, that he sort of would have preferred to leave it kind of out, I'd say. Am I, am I right, Jack? Yeah, and probably a few thousand dollars in analysis. And nonetheless, Jeff, as I would have done in your place, you kind of had to put it in. Kind of. There's everything about Aerosmith's amazing to me that I always think, oh, they're older now or they're together after 50 years or whatever. But you know what? It's like, I don't know, Freud came up with it, but you are just who you were. And you know, when you talk to those guys, the conflicts and emotions are as raw today as they were in 1970 when they're walking down Newbury Street. When they're recounting those stories, it hurts just as much. Right. So break down the uh, the nature of the conflict. You know, if I could say, and I think I told Jeff the same thing, when Joe Perry came up with the, the very simple every time he came up with something, Stephen got on the drums and played along with it. Sometimes it was cool, sometimes it wasn't. But he did play snare and bass drum, boom, bop, ba-boom, boom, bop. Certainly not with the kind of feel that Joey Kramer would add to it. And Joey added the hi-hat splash, and then it was a completed thing. I mean, it's hard to say who came up with the beat, really, because how many people have played boom, bop, boom, boom, bop, as obviously you just played them. You know, there isn't any single drum beat that hasn't ever been played since drums were invented. So, <laughs> And so Joey added a completeness to it. You have to say, you know, snare and bass drum, okay, it was uh, Stephen. And, you know, almost every song that we ever worked out during that period, Stephen sat at the drums first. Or Joey sat at the drums and then Stephen moved him off the drums, which was very common. And pretty much everybody in the band would go, ooh, no, not good. Or, yay, that's cool. Let's develop it from there. And really, that drum beat is developed by Joey. It sounds like a collaboration for sure. Why was it such a, a fraught issue for Joey Kramer? Well, because Joey believes that it's his. And it's become such an iconic drum beat. I mean, when you had those kids in the Bronx scratching it over and over that started you know pretty much i mean they didn't even know what came after the introduction but that made it an iconic beat up to the point that run dmc picked up on it as a guitarist i always thought the rhythm the verse riff is a little bit underrated it's a little tricky variation on a like a funk variation of a chuck berry thing well you know that's brad whitford everyone always added their little parts to everything that we ever did and with both steven and i cheering and rooting what we felt was good for it and just saying, forget about that if we didn't like it. To this day, Joe Perry, it's always a crapshoot whether he's going to completely nail that part. And if you notice in the video, in the session, he wasn't always nailing it either in the Run DMC collaboration, perhaps because of the chemical enhancement. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jack, when he describes in the book, I describe the creative process of Aerosmith through everybody, but also through Jack. And what's fascinating to me is I always think of people working their songs through and writing and this sort of fluid process. And what Jack would describe was like someone would come in with like, I got this, da 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 and then someone else would come and go, I got I got this, boom, boom, boom. And you know, well, that's Jack exactly almost like stitched it, it together like a Frankenstein, but it all came together. Yeah, and in this case, actually, Frankenstein was involved, wasn't it? Frankenstein <laughs> <Right>. was, <laughs> yes, heavily involved, only because after having the track and everything else completed, that was the last one, and it was almost thrown off the record because we couldn't really find anything that went with it. You know, one thing I never, t I don't think I talked to Jeff about was the fact that Stephen and I were big fans of Last Poets, 
And although I can't say for sure that that had some influence on what Stephen did with the verses, hmm. but I think it did. It wasn't a blank slate. You know, we understood that that kind of thing was going on. And Stephen was also, a, you know, a big fan of very early blues. And there was that kind of, there was a lot of talking in very early blues. So he was not afraid to do that. But it was revolutionary. And when he came in with that verse, we were all scratching our heads a bit. <laughs> it's rhythmic, but will it be accepted? And we laughed about Joey and therapy and everything, but we shouldn't because the fact is there's a deep psychological thing going on there and a dynamic. I talk with Joey a lot and Joey was an abused child. His father physically beat him and he felt like there was a same sort of thing going on with Stephen. Not the physical beating necessarily, but the berating and yelling and that he felt like this sort of like, I love you, but I'm going to scream at you thing going on, which he still has sort of worked through. And he has actually gone through a lot of therapy over that. You know, I sent Tyler a message. I was having trouble reaching him after a while, but I sent him a message telling him what Joey said, because I felt like it was unfair to put that in a book without Tyler having the chance. And Stephen seems to be a sensitive person. And, um, you know, I told him downright that, you know, Joey said he was abusive and he wrote this great message that I saved where he's like, James Brown's band, Buddy Rich, The Who, they all went through lots of crazy internal yelling to get it right. I felt the need to do whatever it took to get it right. You know, I mean, it's just interesting to me to invoke Buddy Rich when you're talking about, you know, a guy saying that he was hurt and felt pain. Yeah, I didn't sense a lot of remorse in that statement you got from Stephen. It seemed, no, like, no. <laughs> it seemed like a lot of shrugging it off. I think Stephen took offense to Joey's book as well. As you said, the, the narrative of that band never ends, you know, it, it, people think because they're older now that they're not still fighting. I mean, I don't know about, you know, whether they're fighting at this very moment, but 50-50. Jack, tell us the story. You actually went with the band to see Young Frankenstein. We went out to find lyrics because for almost everything, we had a walk. I don't know if Jeff described it in the book. We were recording in the middle of Times Square in the early uh, mid-70s, and we would take this walk at night up 8th Avenue, which was, if you've ever watched the show The Deuce, <laughs> it, it pretty much is how it was. There were hookers and pimps and drug dealers, and everything you'd ever want to find was there on 8th Avenue. And then we would cut, cut over on 50th Street to Broadway, which was mostly tourists, but there was the occasional you know, nonsense. And then to 42nd Street, down 42nd Street, we would hear even, you know, sleazier stuff. Everything that we would hear, we would write down because you'd hear just amazing things that were spoken on the street and how you were approached for either, uh, you know, a whore or a some drugs or whatever, or you would hear some tourists being fleeced. Or I mean, it was great stuff. It was yeah. really wonderful. And by the time we would get back to 8th Avenue, 42nd Street, then the two-block walk back into the studio, and we would have a lot of ammunition for whatever we were going to, or Stephen would. And uh, we were working on Walk This Way. It was a Sunday afternoon we went for that walk. You know, I don't know where they were, but they weren't out on Sunday afternoon. And um, we made the walk, and there was just nothing going on. And on the way back, we were walking down 42nd Street, and Young Frankenstein was playing in one of those movie houses that plays, you know, late, late run movies, and we hadn't seen it. And we went in, and uh, we sat there as a band watching this movie and completely cracking up, and there's that scene. And I've always wanted to thank Mel for it, but I'm, I'm afraid you'll sue me. <laughs> there's that scene where Igor says, walk this way, and they all walk like a hunchback into the <laughs> castle. And that just killed us. 
And uh, when we got back to the, and there was a certain rhythm in his walk that was even cool and how they all kind of mambo lined into the castle. And so when we got back to the control room, we put up the track and I started walking around the control room like a the hunchback going walk this way <laughs> again we had but uh, actually the congo congo line of everybody in there and steven was like he lit up and said that's it and ran back into the stairwell where he created a lot of the, the lyrics uh, with his cassette machine and i guess 45 minutes later or so he was back with it mm. it was amazing i mean it, he, there he had the chorus and then he had that rhythmic verse he probably had a lot of those little things in his mind for a long time. You know, as he saw swinging on, the, you know, all of that stuff was probably things he's always wanted to put into something, but never found a place for it. Jeff points out that it's hard to say that Walk This Way is about anything unless, as you write, you're trying to set a land speed record for creepy sexual references perverse, which <laughs> which it's true. It's just a minefield of a problematic stuff as, as far as 2019, for sure. They would not fly. And then, of course, the verses have nothing to do with the chorus. <laughs> really, I defy you to connect what he's saying on the chorus with the verses. But again, it's rock and roll. It doesn't really matter, does it? Well, she told me to walk this way. Well, sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jack, any other memories stand out just about that recording? Or Were you aware that hip-hop DJs were scratching this up as early as 1978? Was that in your consciousness oh, at yeah. all? Oh, yeah. We knew about uh, what was going on with that. You know, we were very aware of what was going on in the Bronx. I, I can't say the whole band was. But, you know, me in New York City and Stephen, certainly, we knew what was going on with it. Uh, Jack, you told me an amazing, I, I actually didn't put this in because I ended the book basically in 1986, but you told me something about Rick Rubin and you, or you were at dinner or something, or can you tell that? We were at, uh, I was at Midem in the south of France in a very nice restaurant, and a bottle of champagne was uh, delivered to my table. And, uh, and I said, who's this from? And the waiter said, monsieur, it's from this man. And it was Rick Rubin, and he just waved to me, and he said, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Jack Douglas, thanks so much for joining us. Speaking of yeah. joining, I have to mention yeah, that. Please. This is quite funny. My son, Colin Douglas, is, is a, now a member of Aerosmith uh, during their Vegas gigs. Oh, wow. I find pretty funny. I had nothing to do with it, really. Uh, he's an outstanding player in his field as a percussionist, and he hooked up with Joe Perry for Joe's solo album. He sings the opening track, and he's playing, and Joe was, you know, he fell in love with him and said, we're doing a big setup in Vegas. We should have a percussionist. And so my son flew off to Boston, and they rehearsed with him, and from what I've heard, they, were, they absolutely loved him, and it just going to drive the band a little bit harder as well. So it should be interesting. Fantastic. And Jack, I hope we can have you again sometime soon to talk about all sorts of other stuff. But thanks so much for calling in now. And Jeff, there's a lot of characters in this book. There's a lot of people talk about and also a lot of truly wild characters. But Larry Smith is a really interesting one. Kind of a slightly underlooked but incredibly important producer who worked with Run DMC. And I found his story really interesting. Tell us yeah, a little bit I mean, about him. I mean, my hope in reporting this, you know, and I talked to like more than 75 people. I mean, all the famous people, obviously, but then also the people that nobody knows their names is just to reset history a little bit. And one thing that's interesting to me is, you know, Rick Rubin puts out Raising Hell, the third run DMC record and LL Cool J's first record. And the Village Voice puts him on the cover and says he's the king of rap. Mm. Now we know the story, how it ends. I mean, Rick Rubin is a genius, all the stuff he's done, et cetera, et cetera. But in that moment in time, there was another guy who had produced the first two run DMC records and had produced the Houdini records and had produced the Fat Boys. And that's Larry Smith 
who at that moment in time has like five platinum records in two years under his belt. And it also kind of invented that sound. I mean, he did Sucker NCs and it's like that. And he was a really amazing producer. The problem is that Larry Smith, for whatever reason, was not an operator. And he gets pushed out when it's time for Run DMC's third record. And then he has a lot of problems with drugs and he hates sampling and he basically disappears. So this guy who I would consider a king of rap or a pioneering producer, whatever you want to call him, he's been sort of, you know, erased from history. So I felt like it was my job to tell that story. Unfortunately, Larry Smith had a uh, series of strokes and died a few years ago, so he couldn't speak. But I found this really cool tape of him doing an interview. He was not a guy who liked publicity, so it was hard to pin it down. So he had to talk to a lot of people about him. But I feel like Larry Smith is like the great missing hero of this story. And hopefully people now will know who he is. Yeah, let's hear Sucker MCs for a minute if we can. So I said this rhyme I'm about to say. The rhyme was deaf, so then it went this way. Took a test to become an MC. And our instructor came amazed at me. So Larry put me inside. Larry, right there, right? <laughs> he invented that sound. And, you know, what people need to remember is, and this is why Rick Rubin got into Run DMC. He heard that record. Until that point, that sound, which might have been in clubs and might have been in playgrounds, was not the sound of recorded rap. The sound of recorded rap was like Rapper's Delight. Disco. Basically taking disco and putting rapping over it. So, you know, heavily produced, slick, et cetera, et cetera. But Larry Smith is a guy who invented the beat and started messing around with the drum machines for the first time. And that song is just, you know, it's hard to remember now because so many years have passed, but if you heard that back then, you would go, wow, what is this? What is the energy here, you know? Right, and what Rick Rubin was, as you said, was drawn to is that he felt, I think correctly, that all these records were never capturing what you heard live that it was always this watered down thing or you know always a like a chic song stolen by, by sugar hill gang whatever it was you know or something slick like shalimar or yes, something you know it's like it was you know these producers were almost too good for their own good and they had money and they wanted to make it sound like the stuff that was on the radio what larry smith had was no money <laughs> he couldn't even afford to have a band, so he had to make do with bare minimum of equipment. Which is, yeah, part of the essence of hip-hop, of course. And I forgot if it was him or someone else who pointed out that part of the Run DMC sound was they this idea, like, we hated that R&B shit. We didn't want that Chalamar thing. That stuff was soft. They wanted to be hard, and that's where the sort of, like, rock esque aesthetic of Run DMC came from that that hardness which was yeah, so what, important I think that's Russell Simmons who uh, Russell, you know, Russell yeah. Simmons and Larry Smith would be in the studio and Russell Simmons couldn't tell you where to find a B flat on a piano but he understood a certain aesthetic and um, so he would say like I want it more like this or I want it more like that or I want it more like mashed potatoes or whatever and Larry Smith who was a trained musician and very skilled could then translate that Larry Smith was more likely to want to sound like something R&B or jazz and it was Russell who would be like, no, no, less of that. We don't want that. Mm. Like Rick Rubin, he was a reducer, I guess. That was part of the thing. But what did you learn about the dynamic within Run DMC that you didn't know before in working on this book? Well, it was interesting to me how little was planned and plotted out. I mean, even the Larry Smith thing, which we were just talking about. Larry Smith disappears after their second record. King of Rock sold millions of copies. Run DMC was the first rap superstars. And when I talked to everyone about Larry Smith, they're like, yeah, like, I don't really remember what happened. I'm like, well, did you guys talk about it? Imagine if after Help, the Beatles showed up in the studio, and instead of George Martin, there was some guy named, like, Harry Smithers. I mean, people would at least be like, where's George, you know? 
And I don't think that sort of thing happened. And the same with this session. While Spin had a photographer and MTV had a news crew, these guys didn't really know if this song was going to even come out. And they had a harangue run DMC to get into the studio. And, you know, who knew if Aerosmith was going to show up? It's just how, like, organic and kind of by the seat of the pants that everything was. Whatever planned is, it was the opposite of that. I also thought it was interesting, and I think justified, that they were annoyed by the presence of the camera crews and the reporters because, you know, where were the reporters when they were making songs that they considered to be their masterpieces way earlier? Why did these old white guys show up and now everyone's excited? And I thought that was a very valid position that it wouldn't have occurred to me that they would have felt. If you go look at set lists from early in the Raising Hell tour, Run DMC doesn't even play Walk This Way. It's not until that song becomes a smash they have to. I mean, they give it credit and they're appreciative of it, but they'll tell you even now, hey, look, my Adidas is a better song. You know, it's tricky. Those are the songs they should have been paying attention to. And, you know, I'd argue that they're right. I mean, those are better. But they weren't maybe, you know, as important. Yeah, they are better. It's hard to argue with that. But better and and important don't always line up. Let's hear It's Tricky for the sake of it, though. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time. It's tricky. It's tricky. tricky. (laughs) Speaking of rock rap, again... Uh, but probably I was actually thinking yesterday I definitely like that song better than My Sharona too so there, there you go oh don't slag on the knack come on <laughs> My Sharona. love the knack you know the thing about that record though is you know Raising Hell if you listen I mean I, first of all I don't think Walk This Way is a bad song I've heard a lot of people no. say that that they don't like it but if you listen to it in sequence on Raising Hell it really works to me the way they all come together. I mean, better than just as a single. And the way that it's set up as a record, when Steven Tower starts to come in, it's kind of goosebumpy. Rick Rubin knew what he was doing. There's a reason why he was Rick Rubin. And despite the understandable reluctance of Run DMC, did you get any sense that they view it any differently now? Is there any more affection on their part of Run DMC? Well, I think they view it with affection but you know i've even noticed it now because a lot of people are like oh can you get like um you know i talk to them a lot about their history the thing that's important about this book is that i didn't just talk to them about walk this way i talked to them about everything and i think that's why they gave me the time right but now as i'm doing things i'll be like hey this amazing guy brian hyatt wants to talk to you about walk this way and you know daryl and run are like yeah we've already done that i think they're tired of it a little bit you know I think that it overshadows almost everything else they did, and they would like people to give them credit for all the other stuff, too, which I hope they do. Yeah, and it's hard to blame them. And Aerosmith has a funny attitude about it, because ultimately, Walk This Way, Run DMC's version, saved them. It literally cleaned them up. I mean, they duped Steven Tyler to going into the office early one day. They had to get him in the office early to do a drug intervention, but it was hard to get him there early in the morning. And they got him there by telling him that the BBC was so excited about Walk This Way, they wanted to do an interview. And so he shows up at the office early in the morning and he's like, what the hell is this? So it literally cleaned them up and it also just revived them as a band. But I don't know if they love the idea of giving credit to somebody else or something else, you know? Yeah, and even at the video shoot, there was tension between them because uh, neither one of them wanted to believe that, they each wanted to believe they were helping the other. <laughs> Which that is, dance uh, at the end is not a comfortable dance. That's like me at a bar mitzvah, really. It's <laughs> not pretty. And in the minute uh, we have left, what did you learn about the role that the beat played in the early hip-hop scene, the, the fact that it was being used as early as 78? What did you learn that you maybe didn't know? Well, look, if you go to YouTube and do a little bit of searching, which I did, you'll find Walk This Way's beat on a lengthy kind of rap that Grandmaster Flash did in 1978. Not Steven Tyler singing, obviously just the beat, but it's there. 
And, you know, Billy Squire's The Big Beat. That's one of the most sampled beats in music. And so it was one of my earliest interviews. I talked to Grandmaster Flash, and he talked about lifting the record up to the light and seeing how shallow the grooves were. And if they were a certain kind of shallow, he knew it would be it would potentially be a good thing to use. That's amazing to me. I mean, yeah. it just like gives me shivers, you know, yeah, to yeah, think about. Yeah, that blew my mind. If it's shallow, that meant there was maybe just a beat there. And that's why he was looking for it. Right. Because there wasn't that much density of music at that particular moment on the record. Right. That's what he was talking about. Basically, it could have been anything. It didn't have to be Aerosmith. I mean, Chuck D, I think, said it could have been Stravinsky. It didn't matter. It just had to be the right beat. Absolutely. So, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me this was Jeff Edgers. We were talking today about his new book that you should pick up, Walk This Way, Run DMC, Aerosmith, and the song that changed American music forever. Thanks again. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. It actually really helps. And for some reason, they decide the rankings on nice reviews. So, Or maybe just even volume of reviews. So leave us a mediocre review. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.